0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and wherever you happen to be around the world, and welcome to a special edition of the Groovy podcast. Uh, my name is Ken Cousin, podcasting from Marble, Connecticut, but today we have a very special guest, uh, someone I'm pleased to say I've known for a few years now. Uh, I want to welcome developer advocate for JetBrains and Java champion, Trisha G. Hello. So at least I pronounced it correctly, right? It is G? Yep, it is right. Yes, well done. Is that a hard G or a soft G? I never remember which is which.
1: I don't know. And I'll answer to anything these days.
0: <laughs> Does it, do you pronounce it GIF or GIF?
1: Uh, GIF.
0: You do, even after all that? Yep. Oh, that figures.
1: The funny thing is that here in Spain, most people pronounce my surname correctly. And in the UK, people don't pronounce it correctly.
0: <laughs> that figures too. Yes. Um, Let's... Let's give a bit, a little bit about your background, because while I've known you for a long time, I've I've been aware of your activities. You're not uh, necessarily well known to the Groovy community, you know, and this is uh, we're our our tiny audience, such as it is, is focused on Groovy and Grails and Gradle and, and related topics. Can you mention a little bit about what you do at JetBrains and what, what you're interested in these days?
1: Yep, sure. Um, Firstly, in a a tiny preamble, I will say you will hear children screaming in the background. It is just my (laughs) small children. Don't worry, ignore them like I do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm a developer advocate for JetBrains. Um, What that means is um, I'm the Java developer advocate more or less, uh, which means I also cover some JVM technologies. I largely do content for IntelliJ IDEA, which is why I do a lot of Java stuff, but also why I often end up straying a little bit into the Groovy and sometimes Kotlin areas. Um, I do a bit of stuff for Upsource because I'm interested in code reviews and how developers can help to make code better. Um, and one area which is where I was kind of involved more in the, in the Groovy community is I'm uh, very, uh, what's the word? I'm gonna use the word passionate about testing and making sure the testing is done properly. Um, And that involves both tooling like IntelliJ IDEA, uh, language and framework support, and the interaction with real human beings and with people, uh, which is where it kind of overlaps with things like um, my interest in code review and that sort of thing.
0: Now, as I recall, you um, prior to your work at, at JetBrains, You spent a lot of time working with the MongoDB product. Is that right?
1: That's right. I worked for MongoDB for a couple of years. Uh, One of the things we were doing there is um, overhauling the Java driver um, that is the interface between you, the the Java developer, or JVM language developer and MongoDB itself. And one of the things we were doing as part of that overhaul was massively improving the, the test coverage of that uh, of that product because obviously it's really important when you're releasing a third-party library to other people who are going to use your code that it's well-tested and it does what what you think it's going to do.
0: I think that's where I first encountered you. I, as I recall, you were giving a talk at Java 1 and you used some examples from the, I mean, can I call it a JDBC driver for MongoDB?
1: It's not JDBC because MongoDB is not a relational database, right. but yeah, it's a, we just call it the Java driver.
0: Of course, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, That's right, so you were presenting there and you've also spoken on uh, a variety of topics. Do you, uh, let's see. Well, um, what brought you to JetBrains, by the way? What uh, attracted you to that particular position?
1: So I was, before MongoDB, I was working for LMAX, Financial Exchange in London. And obviously I've had a bunch of other jobs before then. I've been developing in Java for about 20 years. Um, But LMAX was kind of um, where we kind of did stuff properly. We did a lot of um, agile, agile practices. We did pair programming. We did unit testing, acceptance testing, system testing. Um, we did continuous delivery. We did all this really great stuff. Um, but the main thing that I really took away from it is um, good coding practice, but also um, this is via pairing. So Via pairing, I learned how to code better, but also how to use my tools better, which included IntelliJ IDEA. And that's kind of how I ended up, in a long-winded way, ending up working at JetBrains. What I really liked about the pair programming thing, what I really liked about Agile, what I liked about the automated stuff, all of that stuff, and the way we worked at LMAX was um, it was – technically good but it was more about the collaboration about the people about sharing and about learning and that's why we wrote good code because we were good at communicating that stuff with each other which meant I ended up moving more towards a sort of advocacy type role which is kind of about communicating and teaching Um, and so that's how I ended up at MongoDB because a Java advocate role opened up there Mm -hmm. Um, but I found that what was really most interesting to me, or the the thing that um, well, there's a few things. One, I'm really very firmly gra- grounded in the the JVM world, and getting sucked into the databases world was not really so much my thing. Um, and two, because I was doing a lot of live demos of how to code, how to write tests, how to write um, Java code and uh, Groovy code to talk to the Java de- uh, the MongoDB database, um, I was doing a lot of, a lot of live demos inside IntelliJ Idea. And at the end of the day, JetBrain said to me, do you want to come and do that for us? And I was like, it does seem sensible because that is kind of, that's kind of what I do. I do teaching developers how to use their tools better and IntelliJ IDEA is my favorite one of those tools.
0: Well, it sounds like your timing was very good. I mean, the most recent statistics I've seen have suggested that uh, IntelliJ IDEA has really taken over as the primary IDE of choice within the Java space.
1: Yeah, definitely. When I first started doing conferences uh, around about 2011, I'd say a lot of the the conference talks were sort of 50-50 Eclipse IntelliJ IDEA. I'd say the audience was probably majority Eclipse. Um, Now, conference talks are almost always presented in IntelliJ IDEA. I think in terms of uh, developers, the the surveys I've looked at suggest the market share for IntelliJ is, is about just over 50%, maybe 52%. Um, Net, uh, Eclipse takes a big chunk of what's left and then NetBeans takes maybe 10 to 20% of, of the share.
0: Yeah, NetBeans is a small but very vocal community. They don't like being overlooked, but- uh...
1: Right, <laughs> so they are important. And, and NetBeans is an important uh, product as well because they provide functionality that some of the other IDEs don't. You know, they've got, they've got great interaction interfaces for working with Java for example.
0: Oh, okay. I was not aware of that. I, I still haven't done much with JavaFX. In fact, I think that was one of the first presentations. Actually, that wasn't a presentation you did, that was an online uh, webinar, I think you did was way back with the conversion to Java 8. Uh, so This was several years ago. You did a demo where you put a JavaFX GUI on top of some streaming code and everything like that. Uh, you recall that, that presentation?
1: Yep, um, I still use a lot of that code now. I what I was asked by the MongoDB guys, the the other developers who weren't Java people, what UI do you use if you're coding in Java? And uh, of course, the answer is is not Java. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you're going to do HTML and JavaScript or something like that. But uh, JavaFX was fairly new, so I, I thought I'd try and see what uh, what a Java UI looked like. And JavaFX is pretty nice, actually. It's it's a nice straightforward way to get get working with um with a, a desktop app effectively.
0: Well in the Groovy community, when we want to do desktop related things, one of the big products that we have available, the open source product is is Griffin. I don't know if you're aware of that at all. Yeah, vaguely. And I know it supports JavaFX and Groovy FX as well. Um, but again, that's um, Andre Salmire would be the expert there. He he would uh, discuss details on that stuff. I I still, I'm afraid, <laughs> have been using Swing Builder, you know, <laughs> uh, to do everything there.
1: Well, IntelliJ is built with
0: Swing a lot of it. So is it? I wondered about that. You know, I, I don't know the uh, the stuff under the hood on that.
1: I don't know lots of it, but I do know there's a there's there's a bunch of Swing there.
0: Now, in terms of the Groovy community. Uh, one, there were a couple of drivers that drive the Groovy community toward IntelliJ. Uh, the Groovy support has always been very, very good. But for a long time, the Groovy support in Eclipse was, uh, I'll, I'll say fine. I don't want to say it was was great. You know, it was good enough, if you will. Uh, but after the what I like to refer to as the Pivotal divorce, you know, after Pivotal decided to go a different way, then the Groovy and Grails tool suite product basically collapsed after that. And there was no Grails support in uh, Eclipse anymore, and there still isn't. But IntelliJ still has uh, excellent support for Grails, right?
1: Right, right. We're still actively working on um, on support for Grails, Groovy, and Gradle.
0: Um, so the Grails support, though, makes you unique. I mean, I don't know of any other IDE that has really good support for that. Now, of course, with Grails, you can treat the... Project as though it was a Gradle project, and IntelliJ not only has good support for that; they have good support for that in the free version, right in the community right. edition.
1: Yeah, a lot of people like to get started with um, with Grails because it's it's quite straightforward to get up and running with a with a full blown application. And um, certainly, if you're coming from the sort of enterprise Java world, that's just not possible. So people like to like to play around with uh, with the Grail stuff and and. For us, having that in the free version is really important so we can get people who are just kind of trying things out and prototyping um, and, and get that so that their experience is is nice and straightforward straight away.
0: As I recall, I think it was, it was probably last year. You probably have to correct me on the timing. You hosted a webinar at JetBrains for one of the Gradle people uh, to discuss the modularization capabilities. Is that what it Yeah,
1: was? That's right, the composite builds, yeah.
0: Right. Composite builds, which I, I still don't really use a lot, but that's just uh, you know anecdotal evidence. That's just my own experience. I haven't uh, had that many opportunities. For those people who don't recall, uh, Gradle has always had multi-project build support. It's always been excellent for that. But if you wanted to use a project that was not part of the same uh, file system hierarchy, if you wanted to rely on a, a third, pro- uh, third project, that you wanted to have rebuilt if necessary and added as a jar file to the class path, that's where the composite build part was. That's Is that how you recall it as well?
1: That's right, yeah. So especially especially if you're used to working with, um, with Eclipse, with Eclipse you can op- open up multiple projects from multiple parts of your file hierarchy and work on them um, at the same time, now IntelliJ has never really been like that. You have a project within what Eclipse calls your workspace, and so if your if your application is made up of, say, I don't know, like microservices or um, multiple smaller projects which rely upon each other but aren't in the same code base, you end up having to um, have multiple versions of IntelliJ open, right, in order to manage this. Right. Um, and it, similarly, it, and this overlaps with the, with the Gradle functionality, if you are trying to, if you want to make a change in, uh, in one project and have that appear in another project, you would have had to go into that project, whichever IDE you're using, make that change, build the whole thing up into its own jar file and then use that from inside the other project, which is dependent upon that jar file. And it's just a little bit clumsy. With um, with Gradle Composite Builds, we um, we support them in IntelliJ by also being able to say, look, here is the, here's the source code for that other module, which might live somewhere else. So you can go away and you can edit the, the source code for some module that you're dependent on or a project that you're dependent on that isn't part of the project you're working on and use the Composite Build functionality to just build it all in one go. Um, So there's no, like, moving around between different code bases. There's no opening different windows and building things in in different stages.
0: Yeah, that and that was the first time I'd seen that sort of functionality supported in an IDE at all, you know, because that you are, as I say, talking about completely separate projects, and IntelliJ has uh, has always been separate windows. I mean, it's part of the learning curve of, of learning IntelliJ if you're coming from the Eclipse background.
1: Right and i would say for a lot of eclipse users uh, and probably me as well when i first started when i first came over from eclipse i was like well why would you want to limit yourself to just one project one file hierarchy but um but actually it's kind of it's kind of good cuz it it's, well, obviously I'm going to say it's good because I work for IntelliJ, but, <laughs> um, you know, it does force you to separate things out properly and it does, it means you don't end up accidentally introducing dependencies that you didn't really mean to, to introduce. It forces a clear separation of concerns. And um, With the Gradle Composite Builds, you can get that clear separation of concerns, but also be able to make edits between those different projects in a more seamless way.
0: Yes, I wind up when I do demos having multiple windows open, which always at first always felt funny because it felt like you were starting up completely separate editions, you know, completely separate instances, I suppose I should say, of the IDE. But in practice, uh, the memory doesn't work like that. It really, that's a normal way of operating with IntelliJ, right?
1: Right, exactly. IntelliJ is going to expect that you have multiple windows open. It's not multiple instances of IntelliJ, it's just Mm -hmm. multiple windows open. Um, It's also, uh, I have found that I was playing with Java 9 last year and that's obviously got modularization built in as well. Um, And then when you do that, I found that I end up with multiple modules inside a single IntelliJ project. Project, but they're independent. But again, you can end up running into this problem where you can introduce dependencies between the modules without really meaning to, because they're all kind of smooshed together in the same thing. So um, I'm kind of interested to see how Java 9 modularization will will pan out, because that's a uh, it's early days yet on that on that area.
0: That's a good point. I every time I played with Java 9 with the modules. I mean, I've been running on Java 10 now for. I don't know, I guess about a month or so. Uh, but uh, every time I've used Java 9 modules, as you say, it's, it's multiple instances within the same IDE, if you will. Uh, I haven't had any cross-project issues with that, but that's mostly because I'm working on very small stuff. You know, I, I haven't worked on anything major there. I do like the fact that you can look at the module info.java file inside IntelliJ, and it even in the JVM, it'll decompile it and show you what the source code is inside there.
1: Yeah, it was because um, I was trying to understand how Java 9 worked before Java 9 came out mm. um, sort of early in na- that last year. And, um, and IntelliJ was really helpful for that because it just kind of added support quite early on and, and it shows you what the module info looks like. Like you say, it shows you the modules inside the JDK so you can see the structure of that and you can use that as a pattern for creating your own applications. And um, and I'll say this from the point of view of, it, of a user of IntelliJ, rather than a developer advocate of IntelliJ. It was super useful for getting your head around how how that is modeled inside um, inside the JDK.
0: Right, and then you could uh, put in your line and have it turn red, and then hit uh, my. I always call it my second favorite shortcut. I mean, my favorite shortcut being Control Space, same one in Eclipse. <laughs> but uh, the second favorite shortcut, of course, is is Alt Enter.
1: Yeah, fix this for me.
0: Yes. <laughs> I have a JetBrains T-shirt I picked up at uh, one of the conferences that says keep calm and Alt-Enter.
1: Alt-Enter, yeah.
0: <laughs> I should have worn that, as a matter of fact, now that I think about it. At any rate, and that will automatically prompt you to add a requires or an exports mm-hmm. line inside the module info.java file.
1: Yeah, that's really useful because the, the module info um, file is, is- – although it's a Java file, kind of, it's very different to to the Java files that we're used to. And it's got a different syntax, different keywords. And um, it's really nice to have IntelliJ say, look, I'll just fix this up for you. So um, don't worry about it. You know, I'll I'll just make all of that work. In the early versions of, like way early versions of Java 9 before it came out, and the early support of Java 9, which is what I was playing with and trying to demo back in January, um, that was kind of like, you have to do it really manually. Like, oh, add this, add this, add this, add this. I think one of the things that really made it easier for IntelliJ to do that was the, co- the compiler errors from, um, from Java itself were really helpful. They sort of say, this is what you need to do. Um, but later versions of Java just made it a lot easier. You just Alt Enter and you've got one or two lines in your module info and, and away you go.
0: The whole Java 9 module system is, is shall we say, quite controversial. Uh, <laughs> even now, uh, the Groovy community has issues with it because when you run Gradle, you're getting all these nasty illegal reflective access warnings. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I was going to say that it's a. I haven't had a chance to play much with. Oh dear, here comes my child. Um,
0: which one do we get?
1: The, the the tiny one. I think she's going to want to eat soon. She's only six months old, so she has a tendency to want to eat every fifteen seconds. Um, uh, yes, so last year I didn't get much of a chance to play much with Gradle or um, Groovy because I was working with early versions of Java 9 and it just they just didn't play nicely together for right. the longest time. And even now I'm using um, the latest version of Gradle uh, and Java 10 and as you say, you get these warnings and you're like, mm, <laughs> I'm not sure how comfortable I am with this, you know, what does this
0: mean? Unfortunately, it still works. But yes, it's yeah. very scary, and that's something the Groovy community is definitely going to have to come to grips with uh, shortly. We, we're going to hope to talk to, for example, Paul King and, and see what the plans are uh, for some of that in the future. Now, uh, I was going to mention that you had a nice recording about using Java 9, but actually you, also, you have a newer one on using Java 10 and IntelliJ as well, right?
1: Yep, that's right. Um every t- well so now Java's moved to a release cadence of every 6 months it's made my life much more difficult. Right, <laughs> I course. used to do I, I know I used to do like what's new in Java 8 and 3 years later what's new in Java 9 and um so Java 9 came out in September I went on maternity leave in November I came back in March and had to do a webinar on Java 10 I'm like what I've got to get up to speed on a new version of Java in like 3 weeks. Except but, um, that
0: even though they made it a major version the the differences are are tiny.
1: Exactly. So that's that's the that's the upside is, yes, you release every six months, but it is it, doing it the right way, the continuous delivery way of doing something small and frequently. So although it's an hour-long webinar, it's basically an hour-long webinar on the VAR keyword and, um, you know, what it looks like, when you should use it, when you shouldn't use it, um, what IntelliJ can do to suggest that you use it or not use it. Um, and so that, that's really all that's that's in Java 10 that's particularly interesting. And of course, from the Groovy point of view, if you've been doing a lot of Groovy development, it's great to get VAR in Java because you're you're kind of used to used to working that way because you've been using Def. So, um, and probably you've got a better mindset for this. But for for Java developers, they're like, is Java suddenly a dynamic language? <laughs> no, no, no. It's just you know, it's just getting rid of a certain amount of of um typed type information uh, as in it's not written down it's still got the type information it's just you don't have to type it anymore
0: yeah if your experience is at all like mine you get people in the audience who just basically recoil in horror at the idea you know it's like but you're getting rid of boilerplate yeah but there's so many chances to get that wrong and you know yeah Yeah. so we'll have to see how that plays out
1: yeah and it poses problems for pro it's it Gives us questions for IntelliJ idea. For some things like with Java 8 and uh, lambdas, you can pretty much always suggest look, this is an anonymous inner class. It could be a lambda. And you just put a yellow squiggly there and just say, you're probably going to want to do this. Mm. With var, we have to put it as a, as a, A hidden warning so you can alt enter on it and it can suggest that you turn it to VAR but we can't put yellow squigglies on it because it'll put it everywhere and you don't want to use it everywhere sometimes you're going to want to use it and sometimes you need that type of information because it's all about readability and and that's you can't lose the readability just because you've got fancy new three-letter keyword
0: yeah I I honestly don't envy you that challenge I mean as you say it's it's not obvious and it's of course not even a keyword it's uh, just a special variable name. And in fact, I did something deliberately. I, I put together a test case for Java 10 and I had to put in a test that says, please don't do this. And it, I just went var, var equals new var, you know.
1: <laughs> oh, no.
0: <laughs> just to demonstrate you could do it because it's not, as they say, a keyword. Uh, but I, it'll be interesting to see what the adoption level is, if at all. I'm, I point everybody to Stuart Marks. Uh, right. It's not See. a, I guess you call it a style guide. On yeah,
1: it. it's an excellent style guide, actually, because yeah. it is kind of like, why don't you just use your brain, think about what's happening here. And um, it's got some not hard and fast rules, but some very strong guidelines which can help you think about it. I think a lot of Java developers who've been doing it for a long time will probably say, I, I don't need this. I don't need to remove the boilerplate. It's not important. Right. But I think that as the world becomes more and more polyglot, I think developers from other languages are going to be like, why do I need to type ArrayList on both sides of the equal sign? It's just not important to me.
0: My own experience has been that the place that jumps out at me as a place to use it is inside the for loop because you get that giant type, especially if it's got generics involved, right. you already know what's come, what you're iterating over. So using the variable name of a var uh, tends to be pretty simple.
1: Yeah, I think it's that's true. And also for any sort of throwaway variables, temporary stuff. Mm. Um, I, I did find it really useful in tests because um, in tests you do a lot of setup. Even if it's a nice small test, you might have six or seven lines of setup with some mocks and with, you know, some uh, some variables you're going to inject into here and there. And um, and you don't really care often, especially if it's a mocked type. You're like, I don't really care what this type is. I'm just going to put it in there and um, and just let it go. And so for testing, I found it really helpful.
0: Now, of course, just to be clear to those people who are not aware of it, it's still statically typed. I mean, we're, we're not changing the nature of Java. In Groovy, we have def, but def allows you to invoke methods on variables that potentially don't even exist because the type is actually assigned at runtime. Uh, so you get your, what the Ruby people call duck typing, you know, right. The CK one. right, of course, we don't have that in Java and they're not interested in that. It's simply a way to reduce boilerplate and, that as with many things in the past year or two, they've they've adopted some controversial notions inside this stuff.
1: Yeah, it's basically the, the the diamond operator, but on the other side of the equals sign. If you use it with the diamond operator, you end up in trouble because you end right. up with objects. <laughs>
0: The other other problem I found with it, of course, it's not a problem, but the other thing I have to be aware of, I have to tell people is that you're not assigning to an interface type anymore. If you say new array list of string on the right-hand side and you use bar, you get an array list, not a list.
1: Yes, and I find that really interesting because it does raise the question of, especially in the, in the testing community, people have been sort of saying, well, you know, should we be using interfaces or not? Because, you know, you can mock against interfaces, but everyone's like, why do you need to put an interface in there just so that you can mock against it? Oh. It seems kind of dumb. Why, if you're only going to have one implementation, why do you need an interface? And now with the introduction of VAR, there's, that just raises that question again. Like, what what's the point of some of these interfaces? And yet, on the other hand, interfaces are becoming super powered in Java because obviously you're going to use... Um, uh, the single uh, abstract type for lambda expressions you've got default methods you've got static methods uh, on interfaces you now have private methods on interfaces okay. basically interfaces can now have everything except fields pretty much
0: right which really blurs the distinction between interfaces and abstract classes but that that's a whole different discussion. Um, it's just you know now you're taking something that was, I'd I'd even say stable is not a strong enough word. Maybe stagnant might have been a good word, you know, the Java language for many, many years. And it was turning into what people referred to as the COBOL of the 21st century. And now it's moving again. And we keep introducing all these changes and now there'll be changes on a six month basis. And uh, it's probably quite a challenge for you all to keep up.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely interesting. Uh, yes, especially from a from a presentation talks point of view because I don't really want to be doing two talks a year, one on Java ten and one on Java eleven. It's just right. it's just a lot of it's a lot of getting up to speed on this sort of thing, but yeah. on the other hand, they are like Java eleven I'm not sure at the moment Java eleven doesn't seem to have any enormous features in it, so um you just have to it's in some ways it's quite good for us as developers just to keep our our um our knowledge kind of ticking over rather than every three years getting like this big bang, this is Lambda expressions. What's functional programming? What am I doing? What are, what are these things? And having to like relearn everything, it's just, yeah, have var. Have a think about VAR, you know?
0: know. <laughs> yeah, you would think that it's like Java nine and Java 10 could have been point variations on eight really. Right. Uh, especially 10, 10's really very minor.
1: And they are because um, Oracle's only offering the long-term support on eight and 11. Right. So nine and ten are not really real versions of Java, which a lot of people aren't really aware of.
0: Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see that every time. And and we're also not quite sure how this long term support issue is going to work out, especially if you don't go with a commercial edition. If you stick with the Open JDK project, and uh, I don't think we're gonna know until uh, until it comes out, because you know they had a whole team of developer advocates at Oracle, and they laid them all off.
1: Yes, it's it's yes, and to be honest, even if they still had the developer advocates, I don't know that they would have been able to talk about that anyway because it's all on the commercial side of Oracle. Ah, very uh, good.
0: Now let's um let's talk for a moment back about the the Groovy related support. Now, now of course, you know we're in a visual medium here. We're not in a visual medium, I should say. Although it's good to be able to see you on the, the YouTube podcast. A lot of people are just listening. Um, so we really can't talk about specifics easily, but what's the feeling about Groovy around JetBrains? I mean, is it is it actively supported? Is it something that that they believe they has a long future? Uh, how do they how do they invest in Groovy related technologies at IntelliJ? So or JetBrains, I should say.
1: It's. JetBrains, uh, I'm pausing not because of the groovy question. I'm pausing because JetBrains is one of these organizations with a very flat um, hierarchy, as mm. in it doesn't really have one. Um, it's an organization where kind of developers pick and choose more or less what they want to work on. They work on areas which are which are interesting and important to them. Um, so a lot of the Java 8 improvements in IntelliJ, which I really liked, are driven by one or two people who were working with code that they decided that the code they were working with would be much easier if. IntelliJ-supported automatic um, inspections for X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's the same with uh, the version control staff, the debugging staff, and all of these things. So provided there are people inside JetBrains who are passionate about something, it, it gets a lot of love and a lot of support. And um, and Groovy's like that as well. So we do have people inside, inside JetBrains who are passionate to make sure that the, the Grail stuff stays, um, you know, not only working, but appealing and working the way we expect it. Gradle is super important to us, not only because a lot of people use it as the build system in Java, but of course, it is the build system for Android. And right. Android Studio, of course, is IntelliJ IDEA. And so um, keeping support for Gradle is super important to us, which also means keeping support for, for Groovy in a useful way is also pretty important to us.
0: That's what drove me, by the way, to IntelliJ. I mean, a lot of my friends had been using it, but I'd been an an Eclipse-based tool user for about 10 years. And when Google announced the support for Android Studio, that was the final clinching thing that said, okay, really, I got to go learn this. And and it was a learning curve uh, to switch from Eclipse to Android Studio slash IntelliJ idea. By the way, uh, unfortunately, they didn't exist at the time, but now you have a series of would you call them beginner videos on how to get up to speed on intellij as well
1: yes uh and we are i'm (laughs) I'm actively working on them along with all the other millions of things that I do but yeah high priority for me personally is to have a a bunch of very short videos like five minutes on key features for IntelliJ and as I work on them they will hopefully become more and more advanced so the one of the ones which is the most popular one that I did last year is the Gradle integration because um, it's not just a case of with any tool as a developer it's it's an amalgamation of different things it's my skills as a developer it's my knowledge of gradle for example it's my knowledge of intellij it's it's how my project is structured there's all these different interleaving parts and having a mental model to work with those is is kind of the difficult bit so showing you where a gradle button is in intellij ideas not that useful to you, but showing you how Gradle functions inside IntelliJ IDEA, how you set up a new project, how you import stuff in this way, wh- how to how to troubleshoot certain problems. That's the kind of thing that's much more useful for developers. And those are the sorts of videos that we we're trying trying to do more and more of. That's but that, it's, that's,
0: I'm sorry, that's in a JetBrains channel. Is that right at YouTube? Yeah, uh,
1: IntelliJ IDEA. There's a JetBrains channel, but there's also a specific IntelliJ IDEA channel as well.
0: Very good. No, I highly recommend those, Uh, not the least reason of which is that you get to listen to your charming accent as you talk to these things.
1: Uh, I had had one comment on one of them going, I can't understand her British English. (laughs) I was like...
0: This is English. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's half the appeal. I well, not half the appeal, but it's it's a it's great. You know, I mean, you could listen to Hadi Hariri as well, but you know, that's a whole different thing. Which, of course, reminds me, of course, something that we are all very much aware of in the groovy community has been the rise of Kotlin. And mm-hmm. you mentioned people at at IntelliJ or JetBrains being particularly passionate about a project. Well, obviously, Kotlin is very near and dear to your hearts, right?
1: Yeah. So that's the other thing that's kind of difficult to talk about in the in the Groovy sense. Like, how important is Groovy to you? Well, not as important as Kotlin. Right. <laughs> like right. But that's not to say Kotlin is so important that we don't care about Groovy, um, because we do, because it's really important, like I said, Groovy itself and the integration with Gradle. But for us, Kotlin is is the programming language which we invented for a reason. IntelliJ IDEA is increasingly written in Kotlin, um, and uh, and it's fully interoperable with Java. For those who don't really know, and it has a syntax which looks not dissimilar to some of the stuff that you'll see in Groovy. I I like I love Groovy as a language because it's pretty. <laughs> Sounds like a, a silly thing to say, but it's very readable. There's a, there's not very much clutter. It's right. just it's quite pretty. And Kotlin has um, some of those features as well. There's there's it's decluttered. Um, it's uh, the support for lambdas is similar to the way that Groovy works, um, and it's just a bit more pleasant to work with. But it is a statically typed language, um, and it's basically it's kind of syntactic sugar for Java, and then some.
0: Right, and of course, uh, I, what always gets me, of course, is when I see these, hey, there's here's your top 10 reasons to move to Kotlin, and nine or all 10 of them are things I've been using in Groovy for years, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but I that think- said, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Sorry, I was, I was gonna say, I, I'm i really torn because I really like Groovy. I think it's a nice language, but it, the dynamicness of it trips me up again and again because I've been doing 20 years of Java. And every now and again, Groovy will just say, yeah, you can do that. And then it'll say, but no, you can't do that. And and, and Kotlin doesn't suffer from that. So I think Kotlin is more appealing for people who have been doing Java for a long time.
0: Well, it's a, obviously gonna be a long debate and we're gonna see how that plays out. I will mention, of course, uh, this week is Google I.O. and If you look at the Android community, I mean, I'm getting the sense now. I mean, I thought last year it looked like half of all new Android projects were going to be Kotlin. Now I'm beginning to think that's a dramatic underestimate.
1: Yeah, well, I put together this newsletter every month called um, Java Annotated Monthly. And um, one of the sections that that I inherited was an Android section um, because, obviously, that's that's a Java. Usually, it's all about Java stuff. It's very specific for Android. Increasingly, over time, this became the Kotlin section of Annotated Monthly mm. because a lot of the best practices, a lot of the, oh, my God, my code is just so much cleaner was all around, uh, around Kotlin. Um, and I just... It, I actually got rid of that section from Java Annotated because I'm like, I feel a bit like I'm just pushing our programming language because all the stuff I read about from Android these days is all Kotlin.
0: Absolutely. Uh, but that gives us a good segue uh, because as, as you mentioned, uh, with the exception of the time that you were on maternity leave, right? Uh, you run the, you put together the Java Annotated Monthly, which is a combination of newsletter kind of blog posts at, uh, at IntelliJ or JetBrains.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: And I got to mention, uh, now, all right, when we were initially going to talk, I – deliberately tried to avoid the idea of saying, oh, let's talk to a woman about IT, you know, women and IT issues, because every woman I know in IT is thoroughly sick of being asked about women and IT issues. You know, they'd much rather talk about IT, which is what they were interested in the first place. And I would have avoided all that, except for the fact that in your most recent edition of the Java Annotated Monthly, as well as your own personal blog, you put together a very good set of links and and piece of information on how to increase diversity within conferences do you want to say anything about that
1: um i'm going to try and keep it short (laughs) (laughs) you're right it's funny because most women in it don't really want to talk about being a woman in it but often if you get someone like me started you can't stop me because (laughs) it's an experience we live daily uh, and we, we try and avoid it but that's the way it is so um i wrote uh well, what's the context? A, a couple of weeks back, um, three Java conferences were sort of named and shamed on Twitter for only having one woman conference speaker. Right. And I felt bad for all three of them. They, they all had, I don't know, my, maybe uh, 20, 30 speakers, maybe a bit more, I'm not sure. It wasn't like hundreds of speakers, but it was, you know, a, a good, you should really have had like at least three or four speak, women speakers for the uh, number of speakers they had. And um, I felt bad for all three of them because all three of those conferences had reached out to me personally, invited me to speak there. So I felt a bit like it's kind of a little bit my failure for for not representing women in IT at that conference, which is another reason why it becomes quite difficult for us women in it because we're not just doing our job we also have to be role models and represent the gender um and that's why it's important as well to have more than one woman speaker because if you've got one she is the woman if you've got six or seven you can see the diversity amongst the women and the diversity of their experiences and and that's good because then you realize that that not all women developers are the same so anyway, so um, I felt bad for these conferences and, and they reached out to me to say, what can we do to improve the diversity of our conference? They're all very responsible conferences. They weren't trying to be um, sexist. They weren't trying to cause this problem. They had already reached out to women speakers to begin with. So they weren't blind to the problem to begin with. So I wrote this enormous blog post about um, about what conferences can do to attract women speakers because it's it's not a simple problem. If it were a simple problem to fix, we wouldn't be seeing it again and again and then of course off the back of that i got involved in lots of conversations on twitter about all of this sort of thing and um so i ended up throwing together or coming across or recompiling a lot of the resources i've used in the past um to justify why diversity is good, to suggest things that we can do to improve diversity, Um, some panels presenting different points of view. I particularly like it when you see women speakers saying different things to what I say, because What I say does not represent all women developers. And so I put them all together and I shoved it in Annotated Monthly. And I was like, this is what I do sometimes. I quite often, I try and keep it to sort of Java and frameworks and technology. But every now and again, I get a bee in my bonnet about something that developers should care about that isn't technology. So I was like, look, here, have diversity stuff. Go away, read it, and think about it because it's important.
0: Well, I think that was a very useful service. I definitely appreciate that you put together the both the blog post and the links because now, if nothing else, I can always point people to that. You know, so that's very useful. It's just the timing was interesting uh <laughs> when all that came up. Uh we in the Groovy community struggle with this a lot. I, I don't know why we have so few women in the community. I don't know what drove that, if it's coincidence, if there are actual structure, structural problems involved. The Groovy community as a whole, I find to be very friendly and welcoming. But, you know, I'm a middle-aged white male. It's, things could be he- problematic all around me, and I'd never know, you know. Uh, so, I mean, we do have uh, probably the most vocal voice in the Groovy community among women is Jen Strader, who I believe, is running a Berlin jo- Groovy users group as well. And and she speaks at uh, Great Conf and many of the other conferences. She also was part of the team that set up the, the Great Ladies Group out in Minneapolis, which I don't think has survived her leaving, actually, unfortunately. <laughs> I've met several women in the community, but they don't tend to be terribly vocal. And to be honest, I, I can't blame them. I mean, you don't want to often attract the sorts of trolls that are that publicly... You know, a, a woman with a with an opinion in public will get. You know. Yeah. Have you any had any problems with that or anything you you're willing to mention?
1: Well, well, firstly, I want to talk about the the groovy community. So hey. I I I've spoken a couple of groovy conferences and I really liked them. I thought they were super friendly. Really like it can be quite difficult to get talking to new people at a conference, even if you're a speaker who goes to new conferences all the time. I didn't find that problem with the groovy ones. Um, I found that they welcomed me into the community, even though I'm not really a groovy person, you know. Mm -hmm. I've written some Spock tests, I like it, but I'm not really a groovy person. I found the groovy community really, very friendly and helpful. Plus, also because you're, I think of um, the Groovy community's base as being quite broad because uh, Groovy is a scripting language, so it appeals to certain types of people. It's uh, used for the build uh, for build tools like Gradle, so it appeals to a different set of people. Grails is a different community again, so you actually have quite a broad community um, with quite broad interests, and that's that can be that's very good and it's very appealing for people who are who who come from underrepresented backgrounds. Mm. They might be working in a slightly different niche like testing or like front-end development for example. Um, So I don't think there's a problem with it from my experience and that is a very limited experience. I haven't seen a problem with the Groovy community in particular. Um, It probably is a sample size thing. You're just not that big a community and and you are big but you're not given how few women there are in technology overall you just don't have the numbers. If the Java community, which is the probably the largest developer community in terms of numbers of people using the language,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, if a Java conference can only get one woman developer at a major international conference to speak, then what hope does a smaller language have really?
0: I'm, I'm glad to hear that, and I'm disappointed to hear that. I mean, I'm glad that there's nothing in your experience that's a, a barrier. And, and that again, it's consistent with my experience, but I don't want to generalize from that. Uh, but I, I am disappointed because, as you say, the, the community is so small and the number of women in IT in general is so small that it's a problem. Uh, however, speaking about your experience, you're headed to, um, what's the one? In, you're going to London this week, right?
1: Uh, DevOps UK, yeah.
0: DevOps UK. What are you speaking about there?
1: Uh, I'm doing two talks. I'm doing my um, I can't remember what the title is but it's basically What's So Bad About Boilerplate Code which is my (laughs) talk this year uh, which is I stole all the content from from Hadi, uh because he did a talk about um, why Kotlin is amazing, right? And right. so he's got slides showing the the horrible Java code and the beautiful Kotlin code. And I felt a bit defensive about Java, so I took the horrible Java code, I made it as beautiful as I could make it, including using newer features, the newest features I could find. Um, and often brings it very close to what the Kotlin code looks like. So my talk is kind of like, look, you know, Kotlin's great. And if you have the opportunity to use Kotlin, for example, then you should go away and use it. But don't forget about Java because it's evolving very quickly, and especially with these new faster releases. And um, see all these new things which have come in, which can help reduce the, reduce the cognitive overhead of reading code, like Lambda expressions, like VAR, like the fact they're working on new switch expressions, all of these sorts of things. Um so uh Java especially if you've been away from Java for a little while is not the language it used to be. Um so that's that talk. It's a bit it, it's a bit of a bipolar talk because it's supposed to be Kotlin's amazing but I'm like but I'm not a Kotlin developer uh, and Java's uh. quite good really. <laughs> um and the other talk I'm doing is uh I'm part of the Java Council um closing keynote. So me and Simon Maple and um Martin Verberg will do our Java Council uh, podcast thing where we just basically make jokes at each other's ex- at each other's expenses in a nice way, and um, and talk about community news and that sort of thing.
0: Oh, excellent! That sounds like fun, actually. Uh, so I hope last, you look forward to that.
1: Yeah, last time I did that at uh, DevOps. Belgium, um, they we had wine and beer. Everyone else had beer. I had wine because you know I, I like wine, and um, and I had my wine. And then I, I I insulted Mark Reinhold in front of everybody about Java nine and how terrible it was going to be. So I don't think I'll drink this time.
0: <laughs> have Have you made the 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 Java PMS joke or not?
1: No, no, not
0: no. <laughs> I still do. I know that even they have stopped calling it that they call it modularization now or whatever. but I still I use that as a symptom of the fact that I mean that there couldn't possibly be any women on the team because somebody would have noticed this yeah. you know I mean it jumped right out at me, but that's you know that was luck, I suppose but I, I just still can't believe that they they went with this abbreviation for the platform module system without thinking, you know, or as I say, where some women on the team making an ironic statement. You know, I have no no idea there.
1: I don't know, but I think you're right. This is this is where a lot of these little things come in, um, just to hijack your conversation. A <laughs> lot of these little things come in because we don't have um, diversity of opinion in, in groups. And it's not just women, of course, it's people from other ethnic backgrounds, it's people from different languages, um, it's people with disabilities, and um, they come with their own different viewpoints and they can say something like, I don't think you should address everyone as guys because that implies men. I'm like, oh, does it?
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> yes. a hard one, actually, because I grew up with that being a generic term, you know, my yeah. my whole life. And therefore, it's it's been a challenge for me to become aware of it enough to break that habit. And and I'm working on it. I, I still slip occasionally. But uh, it's just, again, as you say, it's just awareness of it and, and knowing what you are, unfortunately implying even though it wasn't my background that's just not what the word meant you know when you said you guys you meant everybody but i have you know i I can adjust that that's not that hard
1: but that's the thing that's the interesting thing like some people um so i'm the same as you i i didn't i'm not personally offended by using the term guys i've just heard it a lot in fact i've been noticing i watch a lot of telly with my two-year-old and i've noticed that um cartoons with all women characters written by presumably women aimed at little girls still use the term guys to mean you guys everyone so it there there is a cultural background of it does mean everyone Um, so I'm not totally bothered by it but if someone says to me don't use guys people don't really like it there are plenty of people who don't feel included by that term then I will stop using it because it's, it's not for
0: me, it's for them. Well, and it's also, it's not exactly that difficult. I mean, it, it does feel like they're asking a lot. You know, I mean, I think that much of an accommodation, I, I can make that. That's, it's just, again, it's a habit. That's the hard part with that. Um, now you are based, you're not, you're from the UK, right? Where are you from, actually?
1: Oh, that's a complicated question. <laughs> well, my family's, yeah, my family's from uh, Manchester, but I grew up down south, so I'm kind of more or less from
0: London-ish. Your accent, if now again, I don't really know English accents that well, but it's it's much more of a London accent. Is that right?
1: It is, but because my family's from Manchester, I say last and past and bath, and right. I should say last and path and bath, and right, right, and so people think I'm Australian because I've got this weird smooshed up accent.
0: I don't hear any Australian in that. We have in the groovy community, of course, we have several Australians. We have several Aussies out there, and. You don't sound like any of them, uh, but you're you're not based in, in London. You're based in, in Spain, right? Where are you exactly?
1: In Seville, in the south of Spain.
0: Do you say Seville and not Sevilla or whatever?
1: Oh, if I'm talking to you, I'll say Seville. If I speak to someone who's um, Spanish, I'll say Sevilla.
0: Okay. But I,
1: I'll try not to sound stupid when I say things in Spanish.
0: <laughs> now, of course, we have a major groovy conference um, that is in, well, it's near Madrid, actually, the Greek Conference.
1: Yep, I've been there once. Yes, it was great. I loved it.
0: Okay, great. So, I mean, that happened just a couple of months ago. The videos are becoming available online. So, uh, and I think um, Graham Roche is based in that up and near Madrid, not where you are. Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I think he may. Now, of course, I say near Madrid, it it could be two hours away. And and what would I know? You know, I have not yet been to Spain. Unfortunately, I'd, I'd love to get there sometime. But you've been there a little while now, right?
1: Uh, I've been here five years, uh, which I don't like to admit because my Spanish is shocking. <laughs> but I've been here five years now, yeah.
0: Well, I can assure you your Spanish is a lot better than mine. <laughs> you know, I mean, if I say hola, I pretty much used it up. So don't <laughs> tell Ezra that it's that bad, you know. <laughs> uh, he's he's very amusing, by the way, online. It's, it's great to have him around as well. Uh, how are the little ones doing? Are they bilingual?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, they are, actually. Um, Evie. I mean,
0: Amy, by- not Amy yet, of course. But Evie. No, no,
1: no. Evie is two and a half now, and she, um, in the last few weeks, so she, she picks up words in both for a while. And bilingual children, generally, they, they, I'm told they speak a bit later than children who only have one language to focus on, and that makes sense. Mm. So we didn't really expect her to start speaking that quickly. But what, what we found is that she uses the smallest words in whichever language. So she ah. says car, not coche, you know, and she says, um, what, what else? She says tree, not arbol. So she was speaking a lot of English because a lot of the English nouns for some reason are a lot shorter. Um, But she spends all day with her grandmother who speaks to her only in Spanish. So she understands all all the Spanish and all the English in the last couple of weeks. What's really interesting is that she started, um, if she says something and you don't understand what she says, she says it in the other language. And I didn't even know that she knew it in both languages. So I was talking to my best friend, Helen, who's from England. And, um, Uh, Evie was giving me a pretend ice cream but Evie always calls it helado. Um, It's just just one of those things she's always said in Spanish and then she showed it to Helen and she said ice cream and I'm like I didn't even know that she knew it was ice cream in English.
0: (laughs) Well that's that's adorable and that that uh, should be quite the learning experience. Uh, My days of that fortunately are well behind me. I'm I'm actually an empty nester now uh, which I think is great you know (laughs) I'm but really
1: looking forward to that.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, right now. I mean, the, the thing is, is that they're in a, they are a high-maintenance but truly adorable age at this point. Yeah. At least that was my experience, so I hope it's a lot of fun.
1: They are adorable. Um, I love them both, but they they do have a tendency to both scream at the same time.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm sure they get each other going. Uh, bringing it back to, to JetBrains, it's a quite an international company, right? I mean, how mm-hmm. many people are in JetBrains roughly? Do you know?
1: I've been asked that three times this week. I can't remember, and I haven't looked it up. <laughs>
0: Well, is it on the order of 100, is it on the order of 50, oh. is it on the order of 200? Or?
1: Like, I'm going to say 500 to 1,000. It's okay. much bigger than you think. Um, I think the IntelliJ team alone, I think, is something like 300. I've oh, probably no. got those numbers all wrong, but it's, yeah, we're talking hundreds, really.
0: Now, Kotlin, it always cracks me up. The, the Kotlin language is named after, if I, do I have this correct? It's named after an island off the coast of St. Petersburg, right? That's right, yeah. Why did they pick that?
1: Uh, oh, I don't know. Our teams—they just pick names, whatever, whatever floats their boat. Well, so we they have, have a new an office
0: out there, right? Do they have an office in Saint Petersburg?
1: Yeah, yeah, we, yes. We have an office in Saint Petersburg. We've got offices in Munich, Prague, Saint Petersburg. We've got one in some unpronounceable part of Russia, and um, we've got one in Boston. Um, and I think we've got—I think we might have another office down in uh, on the West Coast somewhere as well. But we've got a lot of developers in Saint Petersburg and Munich.
0: I knew we had one in Boston that solved some of my time zone problems. I, I swear time zones are going to be the end of me. <laughs> um, but I um, the co-authors of Kotlin in Action, uh, I can't remember Jeremov's first name. Um, but Dmitry. Svet- Pardon me? Dimitri? Dimitri, right, Jerimov and Svetlana Isakova. Am I pronouncing yep. that correctly? Do you know?
1: I don't know. She's on also my you head. haven't
0: you haven't <laughs> met her then.
1: I've met her, yeah, but we we talk to each other all the time on Slack, all of our whole team, ah. but um you see everything written down because we're all remote. So you just see things written down, and you just call people by their by their first names all the time.
0: Yeah, the Gradle team's like that, too. Everybody's remote. They do have an office, and a lot of salespeople like to sit together and stuff like that. But in general, they're a, a global company. They have people in Germany and people in Australia and people in San Francisco and everywhere in between. So it sounds like JetBrains is very similar. Uh, I bring that up because I assume that you are still hiring, right?
1: Um. Yeah. Yes, I, I suppose we are. We were looking for a web technologies uh, developer advocate, so someone to do the sort of thing that I do but for WebStorm. Um, and that's kind of like uh, someone who likes doing JavaScript, basically.
0: Well, uh, that narrows it down, doesn't? Well, sorry, <laughs> never, nothing personal. I, I never like doing JavaScript. So I'm I not a know.
1: fan of JavaScript. It's like it's it's not only not static like Java. It's also it's just mental. It just doesn't seem to be consistent with itself.
0: Right, right, and all kinds of weird problems with that. Although TypeScript apparently is a lot cleaner.
1: Oh, I like TypeScript, actually. I've done some, because we we share some of the um, responsibilities between some of the IDEs. We don't have enough advocates for all the IDEs, which is why we keep hiring. Um, so I've done some screencasts on um, on the web stuff in IntelliJ IDEA and in WebStorm. And whenever I have to do TypeScript, I'm like, oh, thank goodness, a bit of sanity in the JavaScript world.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, Very good. Well, uh, I do want to say I very much appreciate your your taking the time, especially when you've got the the munchkins obviously needing your attention these days. Uh, So thank you very much for being willing to appear on the podcast. Um, Anything coming up or anything either you related or JetBrains related you wanted to mention?
1: Um, Well, we've mentioned DevOps UK. I'm going to be there this week. Uh, I'm going to be in Berlin in a month as well, which is fun. At a JavaScript conference, actually. So I probably, I think you should delete all the stuff I said about JavaScript.
0: (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. But that's all right. Don't worry about it. We, we take the attitude on the Groovy podcast that nobody's listening anyway. So <laughs> you could say pretty much anything you want. Are you going to go to, I suppose they call it now Oracle Code One now, the, the, the former Java One conference?
1: Yes, I have submitted to that. Um, I've submitted a bunch of stuff for that. I'm a bit disappointed because they quite often ask me in advance, presumably because to, to ensure that their women speakers are uh, secured because it's quite a busy conference season. They Mm. haven't asked me in advance. I have to submit through the CFP like a normal person. Disappointing.
0: Well, I (laughs) get the feeling they are scrambling. I just don't get the feeling they know what they're doing on this uh, side right now. And uh, I think there's only two days left in the call for papers. It was a very short call and it was very dramatic change. Um, I haven't submitted anything yet, but I think I have to. I mean, it's a Java champion, an Oracle dev champion. Now, I think it's kind of expected that to go.
1: Yeah, but then you could just go as a Java champion. You don't have to speak. You could just enjoy it.
0: I wouldn't feel right going to a conference <laughs> where I didn't have something to contribute. You know, I just it would feel funny there. So I don't know. I'll see if I could put something. You know, and it, see if there's a chance I can get something Ruby related at the Java conference because they they do sometimes accept that stuff.
1: Well, so th- that's the thing I think about the Oracle Code One. I know that there's been a bit of grumbling amongst sort of the Java old school about removing Java One, but. The Java old school has been whining about Java 1 not being Java 1 for the last few years anyway. That it's not in Moscone, it's not the way it used to be, the right people aren't here ever since Oracle took over, blah, 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 and I I, I understand that, but I wasn't there beforehand so I don't know what it's like. Um, and I think that Oracle Code 1, I'm always willing to give Oracle the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think it more accurately reflects um, real developers. They're polyglot programmers. They're not just interested in a single programming language, and it's not even just about different JVM languages. It's also about technologies like Docker or, um, or uh, frameworks or, or even physical infrastructure. So being Oracle Code 1 lets them be much more open to having talks on at least Groovy, if not um, you know, wider-ranging wider stuff.
0: I don't know. I, I kind of lost you there when you said you give Oracle the benefit of the doubt. That's kind of hard for me there, but uh, I mean, again, I shouldn't say these things as, as a dev advocate or whatever, but uh, I understand, and we'll see how that plays out. I, I try not to worry about these big things I have no influence over. Mm. So, I mean, it is what it is, and, and we'll see how it, how it plays out this year.
1: I'll be honest, from a JetBrains point of view, it probably works better for us because Mm. before, you know, we could go there and we could sell IntelliJ and we could sell Upsource. But now we can say we have IDEs for all these different languages. We've got all these team tools. We've got all these other things that you never hear of because we're usually at Java 1 talking to you about our Java tools. So for us, I'm very positive about it because from a JetBrains point of view, it's actually it's good for us, I think.
0: And I will mention to anybody listening, you know, both of those people, you know, if you do get an opportunity to listen to Tricia speak, please be sure to do it. But if you're going to do it, be sure to get there early. Uh, she tends to fill the room, you know, it tends to be very crowded and very enthusiastic. And if you don't get a chance to hear her speak directly, then again, there are all these videos that are, it's a growing population as well as uh, conference videos as well. Um, If you ever get a chance to work on uh, a book or something larger like that, of course, please let us know. We'll be sure to pass that on uh, on the conference. So uh, just once again, I'll just say thank you very much for taking the time uh, to talk to us. And uh, I do wish you the best in all the stuff you're doing as well.
1: Thank you very much. It was a
0: pleasure to talk to you. Okay, take care.